It's really important to get out there. These people for four years are gonna decide what happens with every Austin kid. It's so important what they do. And we really are in a pivotal moment, especially with COVID, with all of the um, needs for technology and infrastructure and food and online learning and mental health issues. And it all really happens. Our schools are a hub for all of these social services. So it's really like you're voting for your city and your community by voting for school board. Now that is Laura Yeager, a highly engaged public education advocate with three kids that have gone through the AISD school district. She is one of our guests on this episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour, and here is your host, Amy Stansberry. Hi everyone, it feels good to be back after a little post-election break. I know that I needed some time to relax and decompress after all the election craziness, and I hope that you had the chance to do so as well. Uh, but before we put this year's elections completely in the rearview mirror, uh, we still have a few very important races to talk about. December 15th is the Austin runoff election, and four key races will be on the ballot. Two Austin City Council seats, District 6 and District 10, and two AISD school board seats. So why a runoff? Well, here in Austin, we have a rule that for local races, if no single candidate gets more than 50% of the vote in the general election, that's what we had in November, then the top two vote getters will head to a runoff election, which is what's happening right now. The runoff election is on December 15th, and early voting is going on now through December 11th. As always, you can find info about polling locations and wait times at votetravis.com if you live in Travis County, and at willco.org if you live in Williamson County. Now, a quick note on runoff elections. Voter turnout tends to be really, really, really low in these races. Um, as of Tuesday evening, voter turnout in Travis County was only 5.23%. 5.23%. That's not great, especially since these runoff elections are going to determine who serves on some very influential positions in our city. If you want to learn more about the city council runoff elections, you can check out our Instagram page at the underscore Austin underscore common for a guide that we just posted all about those city council runoff elections. And you can also scroll back to previous episodes of the Austin Common Radio Hour we recorded before the general election um, that focus on District 6 and 10. But today, we're going to be focusing on the school board and the runoff election for AISD, District 5, and District 8 school board seats. Now, I have to admit, the school board is probably the level of government that I've historically paid the least amount of attention to. I don't have any kids, and so I'm embarrassed to say that I naively put it aside as something that only parents really needed to focus on. But over the past few years, between the pandemic and Austin's ongoing struggles with inequality and um, working to create more inclusive democracy, the importance of the school board has become more and more obvious to me. A strong education system is the bedrock of so many of our city's other goals, and it's the school board that really impacts that. So to kick this episode off, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Laura Yeager. She's a fellow civic engagement enthusiast, and she's a highly engaged public education advocate here in town. And she's going to give us a little civics 101 
a lesson on what a school board is and what they do before we listen in on a few interviews that are recorded with the actual candidates who are running for the AISD school board. So let's go ahead and give that a listen. Okay, I am here with Laura Yeager, and we're going to be talking about the AISD uh, school board runoff elections. Thank you, Laura, for coming on and chatting with us a bit. Thank you, Amy. I'm glad to be here. Yeah. So um, let's go through the basics a bit for folks. So the school board, AISD, we have a school board. What does the school board do? Okay. So the school board is your most local elected uh, body. And they do certain things, but I first just want to tell you, like, you know, the big picture before I just enumerate the things. I mean, they're elected from their communities to make decisions about educational programs. And this is important based on community needs, values, and expectations. And that's really important because different candidates will interpret that differently. So it's important to get to know your candidates. Um, and they're entrusted by the public to translate those needs into um, policies, plans, and goals that, again, are supported by the community that direct all of the learning happening for the over 80,000 kids in the AISD school district. So, um, you know, specifically what they do, they hire and fire the superintendent, which is extremely important. They set the goals for the superintendent. They work on a vote to pass district policies, as well as, you know, TASB, statewide school board goals. Um, they're supposed to advocate at the Capitol. Some school board members do, some don't. Um, they determine, and this is important too, how the funding that comes from the state and from your tax dollars, but how it's allocated within the district. And that's a really important because that touches on issues of equity. Um, they vote on programs and curriculum, what's gonna be at which schools. They determine what's needed in terms of bonds and they put bonds on the ballot. Um, they set the tax rate for your school property taxes. And then they help with some other legal matters. So they have a pretty important role. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, there's a few things you said there. I want to, maybe we'll start with budget. Like, I think a lot of folks don't realize the school district takes up the biggest chunk of your property taxes. So that's a big, that's a huge decision they're making right there. Mm -hmm. So, and this is something I've been involved with, and I generally am pretty involved at the state level, in part because it is the state that takes that tax money, uh, the money that is raised for school property taxes, um, and it doesn't all come back to your school. Mm -hmm. They take the money, they put it in the pot. The more they get from the property taxpayers locally, the less the state puts in. They mix it up and then they distribute it more equitably than most states. I and mean, we were like 49th just in how much we spend per kid in general. Um, they say we're 43rd because we're equitable. We have our little Robin Hood system. But AISD is the larger, largest payer. And billions of dollars of that money that people think are paying into school property taxes are going to other stuff. So you need school board members that are willing to advocate, who understand it. And AISD, I'm just going to say, traditionally has not been a, as, as big on advocacy as a lot of other districts have. And we've got some candidates that really are, are talented and willing to do that. Right. And so this is the tie into the Texas legislature there. So the legislative session, you know, the legislature is going to be back in town in 2021 here. Um, and that is always a big discussion is school finance, because it is the, the state that's responsible for that. And uh, just to put a fine point and make sure people understand what you're talking about there. Yes, about, I think it's like more than half of your property tax bill as a city of Austin resident um, goes 
it says it goes to AISD. Um, but I believe almost half of that then goes out to the state through this program they call recapture or Robin hood. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, yeah, it, it's also important in that regard because the amount that our district pays in is based on, uh, uh, a ratio of how many kids are in the district over your property tax value. So as kids leave and go to charters, as kids stay home, different reasons that kids are dropping or get, um, get um, priced out of living in Austin, as the number is smaller and the value of your property is going up, we pay more. We paid, I think, $800 million back to the state of property tax last time. And so it's really important for people to care about charter policy, to care about school funding policy, to care about testing. I mean, all of these policies that happen at the state level, they affect you locally. And if your school board members aren't going to stand up and get involved, um, it's it's hard. It it gets really hard. So yes, a large proportion does. And I I think it is nice that we are trying to balance it at our state. Um, But we we need people who are willing to say we need more funding and the state needs to do their share and give their cares money back to our district. So um, anyway, there are lots of issues, but the school board also is just the closest to you. You have the most, they have the most impact over you on a day-to-day basis, whether your kids go to school, they're going to be your doctors when they grow up. It's the center of our community. And then you have the most impact over them because you call them, you text them. They're, they're in the grocery store when it's not COVID. Uh, they have plenty of time on Zoom these days. So it's just really important to know them and pick them wisely and vote for them. Yeah, and, and I want to talk about since it is, you know, this pandemic time, what impact, and that's been a big conversation around schools, right, is should they open, should they not reopen, how do they do this equitably, what role do, does school district and um, school board members have over around the pandemic, why is it important to especially care about that now? So, um, you know, it is really important and the school district does decide how the schools reopen, when they reopen. Again, this is driven by uh, a state level official to some extent. Our education commissioner is appointed by the governor. So in two years, we will vote for a new governor. Um, and it's important to pay attention for the years leading up to it because a lot of what's happening at the state level is tying the hands of our superintendent and saying you have to go back in person. We are one of two states that require kids to go back in person to get funded us in Florida, that's it. Um, But within that, districts are doing it a little bit differently. And uh, the school board picks the superintendent who will or will not push back on that state level official. Um, And again, um, the more people, I mean, we've had an example here where a small group of um, well-resourced, loud parents who are often heard insisted on something and led the superintendent to make a decision. Whereas the people that traditionally are not heard who are uh, less well-resourced, if that's a verb or adjective, whatever it is, mm-hmm. um, they have not had their voices heard and they're being forced into some positions that are really hard health-wise. So again, it's just so important to get board members who are willing to stand up for what you believe in. I believe in equity. You know, we need people to, to advocate for those who need the most. Um, and, and their board and their people running who stand up for different things. You got to really get to know them and listen to your interviews and the interviews on AISD for All that have really asked them some hard questions. Yeah, I think the equity component is so key here. And and that really is, you know, especially in schools. I mean, that's that's the bedrock of what we're building as a society and um, how we're, you know, starting kids off and, you know, in this world and our community. Um, 
Can you talk a little bit about um, kind of the role, again, that school boards play in in equity, in policy, because like you said, budget. So that's a big piece, right? They're deciding where money is going, different parts of town, what other kind of decisions tend to impact that? Well, they, they decide not only where money goes within the district, I mean, but they also decide which programs are where, you know, do we have advanced classes on the east side of our city? Do we have, um, you know, transportation available to kids go, who want to go to magnet programs or fine arts programs across the city? Um, are we offering equal, um, equal, uh, opportunities for input for communities around the district? Um, because the inequities that have come out of COVID have really been magnified some of the discrepancies and the, the differences. And we really need a board now that is willing to look at that and really to speak up and say that if every kid does better, every kid does, then the entire district will do better. And so I personally am extremely concerned that we get some equity focused people that are going to bring in some voices that haven't been heard. Um, but yeah, the district makes the decisions and the school board drives it. They drive the superintendent to decide pretty much everything within the district. Um, and then also to advocate for better policies that give us more leeway to do more good things, looking outward towards the state. Um, yeah. And then, you know, I want to talk a little bit about some specifics. So the school board here in Austin, it's made up of eight people, right? No. How many? No, there are nine. There nine. are seven single district trustees and there are two at-large trustees. So Got seven it. go like down vertical teams um, and the two at-large trustees, everyone votes on. And so there are nine. They have staggered four-year terms. They're unpaid, which also limits who can run. So that's important to keep in mind. And that's an issue that may come up as well. Wow. Um, so it's all volunteer position. Four years, volunteer. all volunteer. No one's ever happy with you. It is hard, thankless work. So thank you to everyone who's willing to run. And um, thank you to the voters who are willing to, to make it in a, a well-informed decision. Great. And then just like a final last pitch, you know, from you, as far as encouraging folks, I'm sure you're reminding all your friends and such to get out there and vote for this. One thing that I know could be especially difficult. This is an AISD school board race, and it's a runoff. I know voter turnout for these things can be so low, but your vote really does can really make a difference in this kind of election. Right, Amy, you're absolutely right. Runoffs in general have abysmal turnout numbers. Um, and school board when it used to just be school board, people would turn out some, but then in the runoffs, it was extremely low. So the fewer people to vote, the more each vote really makes a dis, you know, counts. Um, and so it's really important to get out there. These people for four years are going to decide what happens with every Austin kid, what happens with your property value. You know, it just, it's so important what they do. And we really are in a pivotal moment, especially with COVID with all of the um, needs for technology and infrastructure and food and um, online learning and mental health issues. And it all really happens. Our schools are a hub for all of these social services. So it's really like you're voting for your city and your community by voting for school board. So I urge you to go get out, you know, learn a teeny bit about these candidates first and city council and then go out and vote. It's fun and it's invigorating and, you know, it'll make a better city. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. 
Wow, so much great info there. So just to recap again, we have two seats up for election during this runoff. District 5, which represents Central Southwest Austin, and District 8, which is an at-large district, which means that everyone gets to vote in that race. A quick side note here, throughout this podcast, I'm going to refer to District 8 as District 8, but sometimes it's called other things like Place 8 or Position 8. On your ballot, it's actually going to be called AISD Position 8. The key thing to remember is just that it's the number 8 and it's an at-large seat. In District 8, the two candidates in the runoff are Noelita Lugo and Leticia Caballero. In a minute, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Noelita. Uh, Leticia did respond to our interview request, but was unable to fit it into her schedule. So if you'd like to learn more about Leticia, I encourage you to check out her website, which is leticia4aisd.com. She's got a lot of great info on there about her platform and on why she's running. Okay, so now let's go ahead and listen in on that interview with Nolita. I am here with Nolita, and she is one of the candidates running in the AISD school board runoff election, which is happening right now um, for one of the at-large seats here um, in AISD school district. I want to give you the chance to talk a little bit about um, your background and what brought you to running today. You mentioned that you see public education as a social justice issue. I know that's a little bit of um, your history of advocacy as well. Do you want to talk about um, kind of your personal background and, and how you got to this, this point? Yeah, thank you. So a little bit of about my own background is so I grew up in a working class family. My mom immigrated to the United States from Mexico. Um, she's Otomi. So I, I uh, acknowledge and take uh, pride in that culture, cultural heritage of being indigenous. And my dad, uh, he passed away seven years ago. He uh, identified as Mexican American. Um, so I grew up in that kind of setting. I was the youngest of three. I was the first in my family to graduate from college, the only one who holds two BA, two bachelor uh, degrees and a master of science in social work, a, a graduate degree. And so um, I know firsthand the power that public education has to transform lives, to open up doors of opportunities, not just academically, but personally and professionally. Um, and that is a big driver of my passion. I think for folks who have heard me on candidate forums or, you know, one-on-one -on -one or small group Zooms over the last several months as I've uh, campaigned, um, one of the things that I've heard over uh, and over again is that they get the real sense that I'm uh, a committed advocate and that I'm passionate. And I think that passion comes because from my lived experience. Um, secondly, you know, as I mentioned earlier, I've spent 20 years in public service. Um, the programs that I worked on were focused on uh, strengthening the parent-child bond, um, improving uh, financial and emotional stability for children and families, and working with low-income uh, fathers, primarily African-American and Hispanic dads. So I've really spent my life um, being a, an advocate for children and families. About a year uh, or so ago, uh, the school district uh, laid out a plan to close 12 elementary and middle schools across Austin. The vast majority of those schools um, were 
east of I-35, and all of them were east of Lamar Boulevard. And for any folks who might know the history of Austin, um, you know that the demarcation of our city's uh, racially segregated housing is I-35. So long story short, those uh, 12 schools that were listed for closure were going to be schools that serve majority African-American and Hispanic students and majority low-income students. One of those schools was my, my children's schools, my family school. It's a Pease Elementary. It was an all-transfer school. Um, and so at that time, I when the news broke that there was this list of 12 schools and we knew which schools they were, um, I immediately jumped to action. I worked together with other parents and teachers and community members uh, to co-found Save Austin Schools. And we rallied and mobilized. Um, and through those efforts, we have placed more pressure on the school board and the school district to truly move towards a more equitable um, decision-making process and to hold um, the expectation that our community Austin, that our expectation is that the school board will make decisions that are transparent and that our school district will um, always keep in mind that they have to be uh, genuinely engaged with the community. So even though our results weren't 100%, right, so we were able to kind of stall eight of the 12 closures, so four schools were closed, Pease, Sims, Mets and Brook Elementary. Um, I know that that advocacy and community organizing work that I did during that time um, not only strengthened my connection with neighborhoods and communities all over Austin, but it, it developed in me a commitment to fight for public education and to fight for kids um, who are often overlooked. Yeah, this um, school closure issue is something that um, so complicated and complex and I think confusing for so many people. Uh, I want to break it down a little bit because I think it is really important and indicative of, of where we are as a city and looking at our public, um, our public education system. First of all, the decision to close schools, the school board does have a say in that, right? Well, what's interesting, yeah, what's interesting there is that technically the school board did not have to vote on those closures. So the superintendent does have the authority to simply, you know, dictate which school campuses remain open and which ones would close. But the decision was made that uh, the recommendation from the district would go before the school board members and that the school board members would vote on that issue. And they wrapped it up into what the district called school changes. And so one of the things then that I think is confusing about this is in a city like Austin, we're growing so fast. We hear that all the time. I think to the casual observer, their first question would be, why are we closing schools? Like, isn't our population booming? Can you talk about that intersection a bit? 
Absolutely. So this is one of the things that um, for those of us who were uh, closely tracking along with school changes and the school closure proposal, um, we could probably talk your ear off in terms of data. And that's the, really, honestly, that's the kind of conversation that we would need to have to really fully um, kind of look at all the different angles of school closures. But just briefly, um, the district described school closures as an opportunity for the district to um, reallocate where money was going. That's what the district said, you know, that if we close these uh, campuses that are uh, older facilities um, that require higher maintenance costs, um, that have uh, fewer students uh, going to those particular campuses, then that reallocation would allow the district to invest more directly in uh, the needs of students and teachers in the remaining campuses that wouldn't be closed. For those of us who dug in uh, submitted public ed information requests, which basically means, you know, you ask the school district to provide information um, that they should provide to the public regardless. Um, so a lot of us went in there, you know, asked for information, started to dig through there. And what we found is that although the district um, was consistent about that message that I just described, um, we found that the data didn't support that that the facilities that were being recommended for closure were no more expensive in terms of maintenance than schools that were not on the closure list. And when we looked at specific examples, so I'll, I'll give you one. So uh, there is an elementary school uh, on the west side of town and it is decades old. That particular campus um, did not make it to the closure list. In fact, that campus um, is being renovated and improved and is maintained. East of I-35, Metz Elementary is 24 years old. So you have an elementary on the west side that is decades, like I think it was built in the 40s or 50s. And that campus remains open, maintained and renovated. But on the east side, you have an elementary school that is only 23, 24 years old and is being closed. <clears throat> Again, part of the other argument was, well, you know, we just don't have enough students that are going to these particular campuses. That narrative of not enough students is not based on any research evidence that says you must have 522 students in elementary campuses at a minimum. Yet, that's what AISD tells us. AISD says, well, you know, we've got this facilities master plan document. It's a living document, so it can always be updated. Um, but right now, what this uh, FMP tells us is that we need to have elementary schools with a minute, for example, we need to have elementary schools with a minimum of 522 students in order to operate efficiently. So that has nothing to do with are you operating in a way that best meets the educational needs of students? What they're describing is are you operating a building 
in a way that meets the bottom line. And I understand, again, as a former public servant, <clears throat> that we always have to be mindful of how we uh, manage public funds and taxpayer dollars. And we also have to be really clear about what our charge is. And our school district's primary and first priority is educating students. Yeah, and I think, you know, correct me if I'm wrong about this, but one thing I remember reading when um, the height of this debate was really happening was the school district's own equity officer, I thought, kind of came out against this plan and, and also had some strong words to say about it. Is that is that correct? Yes, absolutely. So the night of, again, another interesting point is as we were leading up to the closure vote, um, which was scheduled for November 18th of 2019, date sticks in my mind, um, as we were getting closer to that date, the community, and not just parents, not just teachers, but elected officials, folks like Representative Gina Hinojosa, uh, Representative Eddie Rodriguez, County Commissioner Jeff Trevilian, Bridget Shea, um, the list goes on. They held a press conference um, on November, I want to say the day before the vote, they held a press conference asking the school district and the school board to pause, to slow down, that, they're, that, that we couldn't move toward this nuclear option of closing all these schools. And um, the school board moved ahead with the closure vote. Um, the community had been asking for weeks, you know, can we have the chief equity officer, which by the way was a position that came on board the, the same, uh, within the same few weeks as the closure list came out. Um, so this chief equity officer had been hired. Um, the community was asking, can we see the report, the assessment that the chief equity officer has done with respect to the closure plan, the school changes plan? And um, the district and the board um, was not responsive. And so uh, one of the things that Save Austin Schools did is we invited uh, Dr. Holly, the Chief Equity Officer for AISD, we invited her to present information um, to community members. And um, in that presentation, it very clearly points out that the plan itself, um, the way that it came about, the outcomes that it would have, um, is really a replication of systemic racism. And, you know, I know some folks feel uncomfortable with that word, or maybe they have their own interpretation of what systemic racism means. But if we want to boil it down, basically it means outcomes, the, the negative outcomes that you will see can be traced back to a a disparate treatment between children and students that um, are white versus children and students that are uh, black and brown. And so that happened before the vote, um, but the board did not, um, there were some internal issues and the board did not receive her full report um, and they proceeded with the vote. Thankfully, um, our one of our at-large trustees, R.C. Singh, asked Dr. Holly to present information the night of the closure vote, and that was where Dr. Holly um, 
in my mind, very courageously called out what she saw as a continuation of systemic racism. So to be clear, she did not call the trustees racist. I'm not calling any particular person um, by that term. What she said and what I know many of us in the community see is that the public policies that are passed, if we're not looking at the actual outcome, if we're simply evaluating public policies on what our intent is rather than what the outcome is, then we're not fulfilling our charge as public agents or as elected officials. And when our outcomes reflect systemic racism, we need to decide are we willing to change our policies and our systems to be more equitable? Yeah, you know, what I'm hearing from you, you tell this story is, um, it seems like what you're really advocating for, um, if you're elected to the school board is, it does seem like a change of a vision or of, um, of a way of operating. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, larger scale, when you think about, you named very specific things in your vision, but when you think about it, you know, on a more high level, what are you hoping to bring to the school board that that isn't there already and that you feel like you could add? Yeah. So I would say my hope in um, wanting to serve on the school board is my desire to bring um, uh, the ability to both be proud of what our city and our school district has been able to accomplish and the vulnerability and the courage to not just acknowledge our failings, but to really challenge ourselves and cast off the hesitations that have held us back from being a truly equitable city and a truly equitable school district. And I know that I can do that. I've, I've done that in my professional work. I know that we can do this together, um, but we have to have elected school board members with not only the passion, but the skill to do both. Yeah, I am, um, you know, we've already gone over our time limit, but I have one more question for you if you are, if you've got time. Um, you know, another thing that this, this makes me think of, and I also notice on your website is just a bit of this issue of accessibility and, and who's at the table when these decisions are made. And, you know, as someone that, um, you know, personally, I follow a lot of local city decisions and, um, so oftentimes it's just the same kind of old people who have been there and not to say they're all quote unquote old. I don't mean to say it like that, but it's the same group, right? Oftentimes in these making these decisions. And um, I think what we're seeing is um, a push and a call from our community to say, we want more people to be included and at the table, but it's hard. The structures have been built in such a way that make it difficult for people to attend these meetings or, or even understand what's happening. Um, it seems like this is, a, is a, a passion of yours from what I could gather from listening to you speak in the past. Can you talk about, you know, if you're elected, how you would like to open up a little bit of this democratic process to 
to more folks, especially the communities that are being most directly impacted by the decisions made by the school board. So one of the things that I um, have been able to hold on to um, as a as a lasting value and belief is that again the complex problems that we encounter in our personal lives and then in our collective lives as a society, none of these problems can be solved alone. And we are best equipped to solve those problems from a place of mutual trust and by bringing in um, a diverse range of voices. And as someone who's trained in social work and as someone who has seen firsthand what it's like to be left out of the decision-making table, or excuse me, left out of the decision-making process, um, I can tap into the pain and frustration. And I know that our city is better than this because I believe that the image that we aspire to, again, that just and progressive city, that that's possible, but we have to elect the right people. Um, And so one of the concrete things that I would like to do if elected to serve on the board is to ensure that we let the board um, work closely with the superintendent to reevaluate, you know, how are these uh, decision-making bodies, uh, how do they come together? Who gets to sit at the, literally, who gets to sit at these um, advisory bodies, the the tables where these decisions and conversations are taking place um, and how inaccessible that process, uh, that selection process has been. Um, I can tell you from my own family, my parents didn't go to PTA meetings. My parents didn't, you know, they didn't look like the quote unquote, they didn't look like active parents in education. But I can also tell you that education was absolutely important to them. They knew that education would be the way that I could that I could move up in the world. Um, and so I think we really need to to rethink what that parent engagement or even caregiver, right? Because some of our kiddos are raised by grandparents or relatives or foster care parents. So how do we look at those um, caring adults and how do we bring them into the process? Um, and then just in terms of my own role as a, as a um, trustee, uh, I would want to make sure that I have a, a group, a diverse group of um, kind of community advisors, you know, folks who understand special education, uh, dual language, um, ex- other accessibility issues, environmental education. I mean, the, the issues run the gamut. Um, so I would want to make sure that I'm, I'm pulling in those diverse voices as well. Great. And before we close, if you could just let people know if they want to learn more about you and your campaign, um, what's the best way to follow up, get connected? Um, So folks can find out more information about me uh, through my campaign website. It is noelita4aisd.com. It's N-O-E-L-I-T-A-F-O-R-A-I-S-D.com. You can also follow me on Facebook. I have a campaign page there. Uh, So Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and the handle is at noelita, the number four, A-I-S-D. Great. Well, thank you, Nolita, for taking the time to 
chat with us. It's a great conversation and uh, for explaining some of these issues. Again, um, the school board is so important and I hope remember, uh, folks remember to get out there and uh, vote. Thank you, I appreciate it. Okay, so just as a reminder, that was Noelita Lugo. Uh, who is running against Leticia Caballero for the District 8 AISD school board seat, which is an at-large district. Uh, next, we're going to focus on District 5, which is in central southwest Austin. You can only vote in this election if you actually live in District 5. The two candidates running are Lynn Boswell and Jennifer Littlefield. We'll start off by listening to the interview we recorded with Lynn, followed by Jennifer. Um, all right, I am here with Lynn Boswell, who's running for um, AISD School Board. And, you know, one thing that that we try and do a lot here with Austin Common is explain this, you know, these processes for people, especially who might not be as engaged in the political process. And, you know, I think that this year, especially with COVID and, and there was so much going on with schools, um, there's there's a heightened amount of attention on, on the school board election. And, and it does feel... Um, you know, I think for people who maybe didn't pay attention to it before, there's more reason to pay attention to what the school board is up to now. Um, so I'm glad you were able to join us. Uh, maybe just to start to give us a little background, who are you? Um, what motivated you to, to run for this position? Sure. My name is Lynn Boswell. I am the mom of two kids who've been through AISD. I have a son who graduated in 2017 and a daughter who's in high school now. And I got involved like a lot of people do, um, just volunteering at my kid's school at the beginning and was involved with PTA and a garden there and some things, and then got involved early on in something called the Austin Council of PTAs. And I work as a journalist and a documentary filmmaker, so I've always been curious about, you know, kind of things beyond my own bubble. And I got involved with something called the Austin Council of PTAs, which serves the entire district and really got to know the district as a whole and the contrast with the schools in my neighborhoods. So I think that's really a big part of what motivated me to run. And also what you were just talking about in the introduction, that our schools matter to our whole community. Doesn't just matter to people who work there, doesn't just matter to people who are students at the moment or, or the families of students, it matters to our whole community. And, and there's a lot that's going well and a lot that we could do better. Yeah. And so when you look at things like, you know, obviously COVID has really affected the way that we're educating our, our community. What, what kind of things have you seen that the school district do well or not so well, or things that you would like to, you know, if, if you're elected kind of influence in the future, I think that COVID, you know, not only did it create this challenge, but it really, again, for the larger community, shone a light on some of our deeper inequities and, and problems with the way that we educate our community. Absolutely. I think that is exactly right. And I think what we're seeing is that schools are important as a workforce issue. Schools are where kids go during the day while parents are working. Schools are important for social services. It's where we catch a lot of child abuse. It's where kids eat in many cases. Um, a lot of things happen in our schools that go beyond education and education happens in our schools. And I think the data, when you travel around the district, when you really look at the data from area to area, school to school, you see that kids aren't getting an equitable education, that discipline is not applied equitably. 
um, we have a lower rate of college enrollment on average for our Black and Latino students than the national average. We can, in, in the most educated city, you know, one of the most educated cities in our country. Um, so there are a lot of things we can do better. I think, you know, Austin ISD jumped into COVID immediately and made sure that kids who needed to eat were fed. That was a great thing. Um, Austin ISD really jumped. I think they were quick to close early in the pandemic when we didn't have a lot of science available. We didn't know what was coming. They made a pretty brave choice to say that they were closing schools um, around the same time South by Southwest was happening. And, and that was early. Um, and I was proud of us for kind of making that choice to protect our community. Um, I think some things that could be done better. You know, I think we got tech creatively into people's hands, but communication has not been strong. I think it's a big civic problem that needs a big creative civic response. Um, we've kind of thought one size fits all about it. And I think we need to be more innovative, more creative, more collaborative in how we figure out how we navigate this. So people who need to be in schools are, so we do it safely despite the environment we're in, you know, I, people say, you know, why are the bars open and the school is struggling? You know, we need to think about that and talk about that. And I think we really need to push back. Our, our school districts operate under an, an environment that's really set by the Texas Education Agency, the TEA. The TEA director is appointed by the governor and their rules are maybe not the rules our community wants. They're pushing us to standardized testing. They're saying um, that they won't fully fund schools if we don't have full face-to-face -face, and whether that's right for our community or not. And I think we need to push back really hard about the rules that may or may not be right for us. And we need some more local control over those decisions. And especially with standardized testing, there's no reason that we should be have high stakes testing this year. And it puts the pressures in all the wrong places when there's so many other things we need to really be focused on. Yeah, this, this tension between the state and Austin is um, an issue that's pervasive throughout our community and with a lot of different issues. But um, I know this is also something you have a bit of experience with. You know, we have the legislature coming back into session um, in coming up in January and um, school funding is also a big thing that the legislature is in charge of. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about your own background in advocating for Austin at a, you know, in these state um, institutions? Sure. I think it's important to know, you know, school funding and healthcare are really the two biggest parts of our state budget. And uh, we are 43rd in the country and for student funding. It's, it's really hard to have an excellent education for everyone who needs it when you're 43rd place in per student funding. Even after HB3, we may be 42nd, depending on how you calculate it, but that's, I'm not impressed with that. I don't think any of us would consider that a goal. So um, I happen to have a law degree. I don't work as a lawyer, um, but I got involved with the last legislative session. A group of people were, we've always had very strong advocates through Austin Council PTAs in Austin who are ready to write letters to their legislators and speak up and testify. And I think we all know living in Austin that Austin's voice doesn't move the needle uh, when we speak by ourselves. Uh, we can go, you know, our legislators already vote in the way we hope they will. That's why they're there. Or that's why we've elected them to be there. And um, a couple of groups at the same time were trying to build statewide coalitions of people who could speak up about shared issues, really basically just that our schools need more funding. Whatever you value in your public schools, whether it's the biggest employer in your community, whether you love um, the, the unity that comes with your local high school sports team, 
you know, conservative rural, suburban, urban, you know, all of it, um, liberal, you know, conservative, everyone wants strong public schools, needs public, strong public schools. And we basically built something called Just Fund at Texas that is statewide and volunteer and all with a shared purpose. And we now have a group of thousands of people who we can mobilize to speak up about school funding. And it became very effective during the legislature last year. We ended up with about 25,000 postcards, love letters to public schools that were delivered in um, Valentine boxes to legislators right before the HB3 vote. Had people come from all over the state to deliver them in person. And now we have, we've built this network and we can get a statewide grassroots public ed supporter voice to speak up when we need it. And I think school funding will be an issue again. It's about maintaining HB3. It's about going into a session where the budget is going to be in crisis, where the needs are big and really fighting to keep what we have and also making sure that we continue to talk about moving forward so we're not stuck at 42nd or 43rd. And then in Austin, really talking about recapture reform. Um, which is yeah, I was just going to have you, yeah, I want to have you define two things real quick before we go further. So one, you've mentioned a few times HB3, right? So can you explain for folks what that is? And then maybe briefly give a little explanation of recapture as well. So HB3 was a bill that was passed. It became law in the legislature last session that gave huge boosts to the public school funding in our state. It was bipartisan. It was really celebrated. People who ran again in this election cycle ran all over the state based on the fact that they had supported it, had been part of that process. And it, it gave more money to schools and it also expanded things like services for students who are dyslexic, for early childhood programs, for lots of other things that we really know we need in our schools. So it was a huge victory. But we, as advocates, as people who care about our schools, we need to be sure legislators don't go and say, we did it, we're done. And we passed it, you've got everything you need because we don't have everything we need. It was a really important start. We need to preserve it, not go backwards, and we need to keep moving forward. So that's what HB3 is. And, and when you hear people talk about school funding this session, you'll hear people talking about HB3 and, and that's what they will be talking about. The second, um, recapture is a system for a long time in Texas. Texas schools are funded by property taxes. Um, it used to be about 50-50 property taxes and other revenue sources, it had skewed as far as about 38% um, other revenue sources and 62% property taxes. That means it falls more heavily on us. Um, and for a long time in Texas, you got the property taxes that were collected in your area. And so property rich areas were able to raise a lot more money than areas that, that were more property poor. And um, recapture is a system where some of that money from property rich districts goes into a pool and it's redistributed around the state. And in theory, that makes a lot of sense. And I think an area that has a lot of wealth and um, you know, students with fewer needs, we can share that as a state. I think that that does bring some equity to our state as a whole. Um, I think when you're talking about a Highland Park or an Alamo Heights or an Eanes, an area that has a lot of money and, and fewer students who live in poverty, fewer students who are English language learners, you're talking about one thing. I think when you're talking about a district like Austin ISD, where about half of our students are classified as economically disadvantaged, where, you know, at least a quarter of our students are English language learners, 
um, recapture looks different. We're a property rich district, but we're a district with a lot of needs. And out of our entire budget of about 1.67 billion in the district, we pay the highest recapture rate of any district in the state. We give $600 million of our property taxes to the state every year to leave our district. And that's a huge hit that really makes it very difficult to do what we need here locally for our kids. Yeah, I think it's about um, half of what an individual property owner is paying to the school district is is almost half as leaving and recapture was my understanding or good there's, portion. Or yeah. There's a great calculator on Austin yeah. ISD website if you ever want to nerd out a little bit and look and you can calculate your property tax. I'll send you a link. Okay, yeah, can we can put it on your it. website. And it's a really great way. It's, it gives a great visual representation right. of exactly where that property tax goes. And I guess this is really speaking to, you know, Austin's larger issues around economic inequality, that we are a very property-rich district, and there is a lot of money here, but we also have a lot of, of need. It doesn't, not everyone is benefiting from that. Um, right. And, and I want to make sure um, we have time to talk a little bit also about um, some of your experience working around these issues. So um, like we were talking, economic inequality, inequality in the way we educate our kids, big issue here and in Austin. And um, and especially now we have the, also this ongoing conversation around policing and, and racial justice in the city, and, and that impacts our schools too. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you feel like the role the school district can play in, in that? And I know you also have a little bit of experience advocating for that here at the local level around the school curfew issue, or I mean the curfew issue for kids. Yes. So I think it's, you know, trustees are elected, um, seven of, of the nine trustees are elected in regional districts. So your job is to stay really connected to your neighborhood, but your job is also to serve the district as a whole. And, and I feel like I really can bridge that based on a lot of this local advocacy work that I have done, really tied to my neighborhood. Lived here for 18 years. My kids went to elementary school, you know, around the corner but also have a really good sense of these bigger issues. So um, with the juvenile justice issue, there was a group in 2017 that came together to study our juvenile curfew. We were one of the cities that had a juvenile curfew that was put in place in the 90s. Uh, it happened in a lot of communities and uh, students were given citations if they were out between certain hours. And I had a 17-year-old son at the time living in West Austin. I didn't even know there was a curfew because I didn't have to know. It wasn't enforced in my neighborhood. I, you know, no one I knew knew there was a curfew and I'm really well informed. And this was a big, broad coalition involved the APD. It involved a lot of local activists. Um, I was there representing Austin Council of PTAs. Uh, Education Austin was there. And um, we came together and wrote a big report that recommended to the council that they eliminate the juvenile curfew and unanimously they voted to do that. And um, now other communities are doing the same. I've talked with a group of people in Dallas who were advocating for it. I talked just a few weeks ago with some people in El Paso who were hoping to do the same. And I think, you know, issues, uh, the free bus service was something we were involved with through Austin Council of PTAs. It's another issue of equity and access in our community. Um, I was involved in the Complete Count Committee for the Census. It's another way that we're really taking care of our whole community. And we know in schools, issues of equity are vast. Um, and part of it is discipline. You mentioned the discipline question. About seven or eight percent of our students um, are, are 
black and more than 20% of at-home suspensions are for students who are black. Something is wrong. That data should tell us that we need to change what we're doing in our system. Um, there are some schools that haven't had art classes or that may have something like um, calculus listed, but maybe they don't have enough students to enroll in it. Um, people can't really get meaningful access. And in my neighborhood, people would be stunned um, if that happened at our schools. It doesn't. Um, and people don't necessarily have a reason to know that it doesn't happen in other parts of our community. When we talk about an equity audit, that's one of the things we need to be talking about. Um, we need to be looking at that. Um, are there enough college counselors to support kids at every school? Are there, you know, are people double blocked for star prep and they miss out on that opportunity for electives? Um, you know, what if you, you love music more than anything, but they won't let you take it because you have to do two maths? Um, that's, you know, that's skewed. We need to really talk about all of that and address that. Yeah. Um, before we close, I want to make sure I have the chance for you to kind of share a little bit. We've talked about some of the issues, but um, sort of your vision for the district a bit. Obviously, the school board, that's part of the role, is is laying out this higher level um, vision and guidance for the school district. Um, if you're elected onto the school board, what 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 do you what is your vision for the school district? Maybe your top, you know, two priorities. What what and what are you hoping to to see AISD turn into? Sure, I think you know one. If you if there's a big overarching, I think um, just really strong schools for everybody, strong academics, welcoming environment, uh, really refocusing the district on relationships. Our district is above all about the people who work there and the people who are educated there and the families. I think the enrollment crisis is a piece of that. Uh, we really need to address why we're losing families. We need to be creative about how we get families back. Uh, and I think all, you know, strong academics, an equitable environment, an env environment that really focuses on people is a really important way to get there. So I think that is, you know, if I have an overarching vision, I think that's really it. And that involves a lot of the issues we've been talking about. It's equity, it's communications, it's um, advocacy. So we have policies and environment that we can work in and do what we want. Uh, and I think that's really how we get there. I think um, collaboration, you know, I have a very strong network of relationships district-wide. I, I really like bridging different groups and have experience bringing people together. And I'm hoping that, that we can do that and really get to a place where we've got schools we're really proud of. You know, schools, Austin's a great city. I love Austin. And, and we should have one of the best school districts in the country. And I really think we can get there. Yeah. Um, and if folks want to learn more about your campaign, what's the best way for them to uh, connect with you? Yeah, they can go to my website. It's Lynn, L-Y-N-N. The word for f o r a i s d dot com, and people can go there. We've also had tons of forums. You can go see the endorsement forums and lots of conversations out there online. And um, that's the good thing about COVID campaigning. So uh, yeah, there's a lot out there if people if people want to go hear more. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Amy. I appreciate it. Okay. Again, that was Lynn Boswell, who was running for AISD in District Five. Next up, Jennifer Littlefield. All right, I'm here with Jennifer Littlefield, who is running um, for the AISD school board to be a trustee. Um, 
And, you know, this is a, this is such an interesting time to be running for school board. There's so many issues going on. Um, obviously, first and foremost, we have COVID. Um, I think it'd be great to start there, Jennifer, um, with a little bit of information about just what you, what you imagine, how we can guide the school district out of COVID and um, ways that you feel like maybe we can be um, doing better as a community to serve our students during this difficult time. Well, thank you. I love that question. I think it's um, the most pressing issue for um, for families, um, for teachers, and and for administrators. And it looks like, unfortunately, it's um, going to be probably at least another semester um, and or two until you know we are really making headway on um, on you know turning the corner on on the virus. So things that we can do um, within AISD to better serve our students are continuing to support teachers in um, providing strong remote learning um, support, right? It's remote learning, it's harder for parents, it's harder for kids, and it's absolutely harder for teachers. Um, we. I think teachers are, are doing a really great job of adapting. Um, that said, there are kids that are struggling with, um, with remote learning and it's no fault of the teachers or the parents or the kids. Um, it's just difficult. And what I would like to see is a continued effort to provide um, a meaningful in-person experience for those kids who need it. Um, our, our current levels of parents that are, are choosing to be in-person have so far been in line with the, um, the on-campus levels that are uh, recommended by our public health guidance. Um, so we're able to maintain um, the appropriate social distancing norms within our classrooms. I think that's really critical that we continue to monitor that and, and do ask parents who can stay home and if it is working for your kids to be remote, um, to please do continue to choose that option um, so that, so that um, we have, we're able to provide a really safe, meaningful in-person option for the kids um, who need to be there. I think our district can also do a better job of matching up um, in-person teachers with in-person kids, virtual teachers with virtual kids, um, so that we're not asking teachers to do uh, both. Definitely. Um, and I, I want to talk a little bit too about your uh, personal background and experience. Um, what kind of has brought you to deciding to run for this school board seat? Why do you feel like this is um, important to you and you kind of can bring to the table here? Sure. So I grew up here in Austin. I um, went through AISD. I graduated from Austin High. And I am really fortunate that my public education prepared me um, to be able to go to a top tier law school. I went to the University of Texas for law school and I was able to be successful there, right? Sitting next to kids from 
elite private schools from all across the nation and really the world. And I was able to do that really because of, um, because of, because I had a strong public school education. I now have two kids, they're in fifth and seventh grade. And I have seen that um, we've made a lot of progress in the last 20, 25 years, but we still, um, we still have the situation in Austin where not all of our kids are getting access to that type of high quality education. And we need to make sure that, um, that we're providing that across the district and that we keep our schools competitive. Um, public ed in general is just facing lots of increased competition um, from from private schools, from neighboring districts. Uh, everyone knows that affordability is an issue in Austin. Um, we have competition from charter schools. So I really, um, I've seen firsthand how important a, a strong public school education can be um, for myself and for my kids. And I wanna make sure that our community continues to offer that and that we continue to improve. Yeah, I, I want to um, talk a little bit more, too, about some of your experience and background. I know that you were involved in the um, 2017 AISD uh, bond effort. Is that correct? Can That's you, correct, yes. Can you talk a little bit about that and also kind of explain what that was for folks that maybe aren't as familiar? Sure. Yes. So I served on the uh, Facilities and Bond Planning Advisory Committee, the FABPAC. And our role was we spent two years um, doing this really in-depth work, um, examining the facility conditions of um, every, every um, all 129 campuses across AISD. And also in meeting with parents and teachers and principals and talking about how their schools were and were not um, meeting the needs of their students. So that's everything from things like, oh yes, the, you know, the roof works and the AC works, but uh, we only have one electrical outlet in every room. And so we can't, you know, we can't have the, the tech that we really need to have um, to, you know, our school is a fine arts academy and we do not have the space to provide um, the dance and music uh, programming that we want to do. So it was, a, um, it was a very comprehensive analysis that wasn't, it went beyond just kind of the nuts and bolts of um, typical maintenance repairs, but really looked at what we want how we want our schools to function to best educate our kids. And um, so all of that information and analysis and community engagement went into um, developing the 2017 bond, which um, was, was ultimately approved by over 70% of voters and infused a um, billion dollars into our um, facility infrastructure in AISD so that we can continue to provide um, great learning spaces for our kids. One of the um, most important outcomes of that effort um, was the 
investments in um, HVAC upgrades. That was not something that was, uh, you know, exciting or sexy at the time when when we were passing the bond. But in in retrospect, now with COVID, um, we have seen how important that long-term strategic planning is um, to be able to react and adapt to to challenges that arise. We also um, funded much of the one-to-one technology, the the devices that were handed out um, both to students and to teachers um, that enabled us to have a much easier transition to remote learning when, when COVID hit. Yeah. And, and when you're looking at a big project like that or any funding with the school district, you know, obviously a big thing um, here in AISD and in Austin is ensuring that we're doing that in an equitable manner, right? And we're educating our students. And we know that there's been a lot of, um, you know, historically that has not been the case here in Austin. So when, when you're looking at a project like that or going forward in the future, how do you ensure that equity is, is baked into that proposal? Yeah, so my focus is um, it's always on student outcomes, right? And that our job um, as a school district is to be um, preparing kids to be, you know, what is it we say, college, career, and life ready, right? And so we need to make sure that our um, all of our resources are going to our most important assets, which I believe is our teachers. Um, we need we need happy, uh, well paid, and well qualified uh, teachers, and and to do that, um, we we have to have the funds to um, to maintain our our teaching staff, and we have to be looking at, you know, our do we have our um, our most experienced teachers um, distributed, you know, kind of evenly across our district. Um, we know that that uh, one of the issues that we've historically faced is um, difficulty in retaining teachers in a lot of our Title I schools. So making sure that we have that teaching experience really in every on every campus community is a very high priority for me. Yeah, and you mentioned priorities um, as you're as you're looking forward and and kind of thinking about this vision for AISD. What are some of your top priorities if you're elected that you want to see AISD focusing on? Especially, you know, we're talking about 2021. This is a big year going forward. We're still in COVID, and the Texas Legislature is meeting. You know, lots of things are are happening. What do you hope to focus on the most? Well, I think out of the gate, the top priorities will be getting set up for for the legislative session and making sure that AISD goes into the session with a um, strong, unified voice in advocating for for funding. That's going to be the number one priority. One of the recent, um, I don't know, one of the issues that's uh, just recently arisen is um, that AISD chose to go remote, 100% remote for the week after Thanksgiving, 
um, in order to, you know, give students and teachers kind of that um, uh, isolation time after the holiday. And we learned afterwards that we're only going to receive 50% of our funding from the state because of that decision. So those types of, um, of funding issues that are restricting the district's ability to use, um, use our own judgment and follow local health public guidance um, are really hindering our ability to adapt to um, what's happening in our community with COVID. Um, so being able to um, being able to get that message across um, to the legislature and to TEA and let them know how important it is for, um, for the long-term success of, of our, our district um, to be able to have, to be able to like, be nimble like that, um, that we really need that autonomy. I mean, the, the purpose of going remote for one week was to be able to reopen after Thanksgiving and have less of a chance of having transmission on campus and then having to close and having people get sick. So um, I really, I think that we all wanna be on the same page of getting, getting kids back to school as soon as is safely possible. So um, we just need to be able to articulate that. And um, that kind of, you know, ties into um, what I would say is the second priority um, out of the gate is, is managing COVID and um, making sure that teachers feel safe and the teachers are safe and also addressing the uh, learning gaps that are going to be present across the community um, but from, from all the, the research that we're seeing from, you know, across the country is that um, those learning gaps are, are most deeply impacting um, low-income students and students of color. So we need to be particularly looking out for our marginalized communities. Yeah, and then when you think, you know, higher level, big picture vision, what do you, you know, hope for the future of our local school district? Where are you hoping to see us um, grow and improve? Yes, I would. Um, I am in the long term. I am hopeful that we can use this um, extended remote learning timeframe as an opportunity for transformation. That we don't go back to the way things used to be, but we um, we center our students and the relationships between. Um, students and their teachers and students and peers. For me, what, um, what has been the, uh, I guess, the clearest thing that has come out of this is the importance of um, those connections for kids and the importance of things like extracurricular activities and um, really bonding with the teachers and adults in their schools. As a parent, one of the things that I have missed the most is the the loss of that uh, that adult village, right? That you're that comes with just 
um, seeing other families and teachers on campus at school. Um, so I would like to see a recommitment to building strong school communities um, and, and growing our district. Again, really just to making sure that families continue to choose AISD. Great, and, and if folks wanna connect with you or your campaign or learn more, what's the best way that they can do that? Sure, well, you can um, check out my website. It is uh, jennifer4aisd, um, that spelled out F-O-R, or you can email me at jennifer4aisd at gmail.com. Great, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Okay, and that was Jennifer Littlefield, who is running for the District 5 school board seat. Now, before we wrap up today's episode, I wanted to leave you all with some tips and just general advice for making your choice for our future school board members. Um, because these issues are really complicated, and I know that if you don't follow them very closely, you might have listened to these interviews and still be thinking, I'm not sure who to vote for, or I don't know enough to make an informed decision. And that's completely understandable. You know, issues like COVID and the school closures, they're complicated and nuanced. Um, so, so here's what I recommend to learn a little more and to make your final decision. First, um, I would check out endorsements. There are lots of organizations in town with lots of expertise who have made endorsements in this election. Both the Austin Chronicle and the Austin American Statesman have issued endorsements along with articles explaining why they made their decision. So those are good things to read. Education Austin, which is a labor union for the employees of AISD, um, is another great place to look for endorsements, as well as all the different local democratic clubs. Um, and second, I would watch a forum. Several education-focused groups have hosted forums with the candidates, including AISD for All, which is a group of parents and community members advocating for equity in schools. You can watch all of their forums on their website, AISDforall.org. And of course, if you have any additional questions, don't hesitate to reach out to us here at the Austin Common. You can DM us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common, or you can send us an email, info at theaustincommon.com. And don't forget to vote. Election day is December 15th. And then I promise I'll stop talking your ear off about elections, at least for a little while. <laughs>